Welcome, everybody, to a TGIF edition of Texans All Access. Thank God it's Friday. Could be TGIFF. Thank God it is Football Friday. You could throw another F in there, but we can't say that on the radio, so we won't. There won't be any football this weekend. Well, in your household, there won't be, but there will be in mine because the Harris 100 has to be finished. I'm your host, John Harris, football analyst and sideline reporter. Going into this weekend, I don't know what I'll do other than that. But joining me to tell everybody what they're going to do is Mark Vandermeer. Mark, how are you doing? Withdrawal. That is what's happening. Everybody's going through it. Look, even last weekend and the weekend before, right? You had the Senior Bowl, so you were bathed in that. Mm -hmm. But last week, you're waiting around for the Super Bowl, and it's exciting. The Super Bowl's about to go down. Kind of. I like the divisional weekend. I like that wild card weekend. I like hot and cold running games. You know what I like best of all, Johnny? Uh, the NFL postseason was unbelievable. I mean, you couldn't do better than that, I would think. But there's still nothing like the regular season. There's yeah. nothing like everybody playing and all the drama that goes down on a given Sunday. I just love that. Do you remember when Sunday Ticket was introduced? Yes. When was it? Uh, it was like early O's, maybe nineties. I, I, I feel like I feel like it was a little bit later than that because I feel like I feel like Red Zone. And Sunday ticket just changed life in the NFL. At that point, you could get any game you wanted. You could watch whatever game you wanted. I mean, if you're up in the, the well, the, Se- the Seahawks have been good. But, you know, there were times, I know I lived in the 2000s, mid-2000s in the, in the Carolinas. And there were times where the, pa- the Panthers weren't that great. In 2001, I think they were 1-16. I was like, man, I would love to see a different game. I would love to see a different game. But... Unfortunately, couldn't do that because didn't have Sunday ticket, didn't have red zone. But now you have it. And we obviously can't use it every single week because we're traveling or we'll put our own game, obviously. But as soon as you get home, I do this. I don't know if you do this, Mark. I do this. I get it on my phone on the way home. And as soon as Sean and Clint go to a commercial, I go to my phone and I have red zone on. So I'm just listening to it. I'm not watching as I drive. I'm just listening, listening. to it through okay. my car and getting a vibe of what's going on. Then when I get home, I'm able to listen. Oh, to watch I go to NFL more. radio during those moments, and they do an audio red zone that's really cool. Which I would, I would much rather listen to because I like, I like the audio guys. Yeah. I love the fact that Dan Horde got to call the Super Bowl. I do I too, it. but I'm jealous and envious and bitter and all of that. Yeah. Now, he got to call not only that, but Cincinnati, the Bearcats. He does their I know. Games. What a year he had. So he had the Final Four in football, and then he had the Super Bowl in NFL Final Four in football. He in had college a football. year. That's, yeah. that's a that's a never forget what was 2021 But they like. didn't win either one. I know. Still, you got there, and that's nice to get there. Uh, by the way, 1994 for DirecTV. Really? Yeah. but 1994? But Red Zone not until 2009. I knew okay. Red Zone yeah. was after, but, man, 94, that's going back a ways. On DirecTV, Sunday ticket. ticket. So you could watch any ago? game you want. Remember satellite TV? Look, I sold advertising on cable television in yeah, the mid-'80s. You did. And I remember satellite TV, we would actually take the advertising for, hey, try satellite TV. You get all these channels, and it's crazy cool. And it was a competitor, but we didn't care because you're only yeah. siphoning off a little bit. And the satellite dishes were huge, right? Massive. They were the size of flying saucers in people's yards. They were the size of your yards. garage. Yeah. And then DirecTV, I don't know if they were the first company, but they yeah. made them smaller and it became a thing. Uh, but they picked up that Sunday ticket package. And you're right. You could watch another game. But 
man, back in the day, you were waiting every 10 minutes for the scores to pop up. Like in the 80s, watching NFL football, where are the scores? Yeah. You're waiting every 10 minutes for the scores to pop up on your network feed, and all you were getting was whatever game they decided you were getting. That was it. And you had no say, no control over the situation, no matter how much you're paying. And that was tough compared to today's world where I'm putting Red Zone into my veins. It's intravenous. I just plug it in from Xfinity, bam, Red Zone, and I'm enjoying that. Think about this, youngsters. How long does it take for you to know game, time, and situation when you turn a game on? Instantly, right? Oh, yeah. Instantly. How long did it take you in the 90s? Oh, for, you'd have forever. to wait for the announcer to, to tell you. you have to sit there forever for them to either tell you <laughs> uh-huh. or for them to go to a break and then put What's the, the score, score graphic up. What's the score? I remember in the All Madden, I was watching the All Madden, um, the All Madden uh, documentary. And Fox was the first one to come up with a score bug. Right. And they put it up in the top left corner. And Madden is, is showing everybody. Yep. Like, here, you know, here, here, just, we're going to show you the score, and it's going to stay up there all the time. So, you know, you, you know, Pat doesn't have to tell you what the, the score is. <laughs> and he was just hearing him say that. And you're like, it sounds revolutionary in some sense. But it's like, it was. tell people what the score is without having to tell them what the score is. Just leave that sucker up there. And then, of course, everybody like, yeah. It's kind of like a yellow line. You can't watch a game now without the yellow line. And go, well, where's the first down? You got yellow line goes out during a game. People are lost. Like, wait, where? where's the first down? Where do they have to go to get to the first down? That yellow line just changed everything. But back in the 90s, I, you're right now that I think about it. Because I remember saying to my wife, honey, I want to get. DirecTV. I want to get DirecTV. I want to get satellite, but the satellites were so massive at that point. Of course, DirecTV changed things a little bit. And um, now everybody gets Red Zone, so it's fine. Yeah, of course, everybody gets Red Zone, and so does YouTube TV, and I'm very, very happy for that. Now, today is the 20th anniversary of something I know is near and dear to your heart. You actually wrote about this today. I did. Mark, but today's the 20th anniversary of the Texans expansion draft and I have a lot of I have a lot of questions okay I really I have a lot of questions about this because I think about the draft the draft is so fun to me the 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 college draft mm-hmm. because you're waiting to see who they're gonna pick who they're gonna pick and there's such drama with that like the Houston Texans select Roy Lopez and we're like yeah, okay yeah it's sweet like it's such a surprise I don't know if that just makes it that much more fun was the expansion draft that way was no. there a surprise element to it, like the Texans in the third round of the expansion draft? Select as, Seth Payne. Yes. Well, as I recall, guys like Seth Payne, Gary Walker, Aaron Glenn, Marcus Coleman, you knew they were available and you knew they were coming, right? Right. There was no way they were not going to take Aaron Glenn. Right. Because you knew he was available. Sure. Each team had to make five players available. If the Texans pick two players from any team, then that team can take the other three back, Right. But teams are trying to get rid of their cap problems, if you will. Right. I mean, Aaron, Aaron Glenn and Marcus Coleman were really good players for the New York Jets. They didn't really want to do this, but contractually they felt obligated right. because the salary cap was something like $76 million back then. So yet a lot of teams trying to clean up the cap, especially the Jaguars, who are about $28 million over the cap. <laughs> so they made not only Tony Baselli available with the shoulder problem, but Seth Payne and Gary Walker. And I don't know if it's urban legend or a fact that – they made Walker and Payne available 
as long as the Texans took Baselli because that's three players from the Jags. They could have taken people back. Right. Now, Baselli went first. I don't think the order really mattered here because the guys were in-house, you know. It, the guys were in the building already, you know. Oh. So it's not like they brought every available NFL player, five from each right, team, right. into the building at the George R. Brown Convention Center. Oh. NRG Stadium is not constructed yet, remember, Correct. so they held it down there. So you knew who was coming in, basically, but it was still very cool. Because the Texans had all these events leading up to the first game, uh, and that took years, obviously. You had the unveil of the uniform and the name and whatever else they had, these events around the city. And this was the first event with NFL players that you knew were going to contribute. So that was a monumental deal, February 18, 2002. The draft itself, they end up out of there with how many players? 19. 19? 19 players. Well, I guess you are. I mean, building a football team, I guess yeah. you got to be able to well, do that. Well, but. the rules were this. They had to take either 30 players or they had to take 38% of their cap, all right, in okay. contract. So either 30 players that were inexpensive, right. which is kind of what the Browns did in 99. Remember, that's four modern era or post-1990 expansion teams. You yeah. have the Panthers, the Jags, the Browns, who came back into the league, and the Texans. That's four teams. And the rules were different for the Browns than they were for the Jaguars and Panthers than they were for the Texans. And Charlie Casserly was like, we're not going to take a lot of players who aren't going to make this team. So we're not going to fill up the 30 with guys who can't play. We're going to take guys we think can play. Their contracts are a little more, of course, but they can play for us. And they also didn't want anybody over 30 or was going to turn 30 by the start of the season. That was another sort of guideline that they had. So they ended up taking 19. They didn't hit 30. They went for quality over quantity. That's interesting you bring that up because I remember when the Panthers and Jaguars did their expansion drafts back because I was in Jacksonville at that time. The Jaguars focused on young guys. Mm-hmm. It was almost entirely young guys. The oldest guy that they had actually drafted through the expansion draft, if I remember correctly, was uh, Steve Berline. Was Steve Berline's going to end up being the quarterback? I mean, yeah. that's obviously where they have sunk most of their expansion draft money. But the contrast to that was the Panthers. The Panthers went in and got a bunch of veterans, right? And that was how they built it. So they went. The Panthers went veterans. The Jack, the Jaguars went young guys. And then it turns out they make a trade. I think they gave a fourth round of the Green Bay Packers for some guy named Brunel. And Mark Brunel comes in and he backs up. Steve Berline ends up taking a job from him at some point, becomes a starter, becomes a legend, and wow. you know, the rest is history. But the Panthers, they then go to championship game the second year, just like the Jaguars did, but they did with a bunch of veterans. But then they added Kerry Collins to the mix to be the quarterback. They drafted him in 95, and so that kind of set them off um, going forward with Kerry Collins as the quarterback. Things obviously didn't work out for him for a number of reasons with Carolina, but the, the approach was interesting. The Panthers taking the the veterans, and the tech and the uh, the Jaguars taking the young guys, and the Texans kind of split the middle. It's like they took a bunch of young veterans that they knew were going to play, and they ended up making a pretty significant uh, impact for them. Seth Payne, Gary Walker, uh, and then a guy we're going to hear from a little bit, a guy by the name of Jay Foreman, that they added to the mix at some point. They the added. Texans. He was not an expansion. He was drafty. a rookie. And Steve McKinney was also – no, Foreman wasn't a rookie. He had played before. Oh, they just added – he didn't yeah. add him through the expansion draft. Right, though. right. And right. Steve McKinney as well was a free agent that they got from the Indianapolis Colts. 
They did a pretty good job. Wow. Yeah. And they got some guys that could have, they got some guys that could play. Oh, but, they did a good job in the expansion draft, no doubt. Now the college draft, not quite as well yeah. because they had thirteen picks that first year. You know, Chester Pitts, real solid player, yes. obviously. Jabbar Gaffney's a pretty good wide receiver. David Carr, look, you had to take David Carr. People forget how highly regarded Carr was yeah. coming out of college. I guess you could have taken Julius Peppers. You right? could have. You could have. And maybe Carr shouldn't have started right away. Maybe they should have started Tony Banks. Yeah. Maybe they should have gone that route. Peppers ended up playing forever, as we all know. But if you're going Carr versus, let's say, Joey Harrington or Patrick Ramsey, and those are the other first-rounders. Or you could have taken Josh McCown, anybody? Because he <laughs> was in that class, Johnny. You could have had McCown here in 2002. He could have oh, been coaching this boy. team 10 years ago. He could have been. I'm kidding. Could have been player coach for that team. But yeah. one player always stands out to me was the one that never played, and that's Baselli. And because I spent my time as a young coach living in Jacksonville, watching the Jaguars, watching Baselli dominate, but then coming to Houston, and then people talked about Baselli as if he was, um, I mean, gum on the bottom of their shoe. And I'm like, this guy's a Hall of Fame tackle. Like what the heck, what the heck happened? And obviously it's the shoulder. But at what point did you realize, okay, this isn't going to happen for him here in Houston? What? Was it was it right away, or was it kind of gradual over time? When did you realize he was not? It was not going to happen. Seth talked about this during a recent morning show and talked about how hard Baselli worked to get on the field. There was no joke. He was putting in the time to try to get ready for the season. But the shoulder never took, never got better. Seth said it was bone on bone, and he was hey. with Baselli in Jacksonville, so he knew all about his work yeah. ethic and everything and how great this guy was, as you said, now a Hall of Famer. Uh, but here, his name is synonymous with mistake. You made a mistake taking Tony Baselli. Now, if it's true that, gee, you only would have gotten Seth Payne and Gary Walker if you had taken Baselli, I don't know if that's true because why would you make Baselli the face of the franchise right. and give him all that money if you thought he was never going to be able to play for you. It just seems like a bad deal. They were hoping against hope that he would be able to play. It was a gamble. It didn't pay off for them. And obviously, if you have Baselli at left tackle and Ryan Young, who they got from the Jets at right tackle, man, that's how you build your line for the rookie quarterback and you sort of decorate in between right. there. You got McKinney at center, who was with the Colts. Now you'd have a pretty solid line. You get three guys like that who can play. You can yep. put Chester at guard right away instead yeah. of left tackle where you had to put him. And – you can go from there. But it didn't work out, obviously. That first night against Dallas, they're starting Jimmy Herndon, who's still here in Houston, at right tackle. Uh, they're starting Ryan Shaw. Uh, it was it was not ideal. Chester starting his first game at left tackle as a wow. rookie against the Dallas Cowboys on national television. And they won the game. Yeah. Great. But obviously it didn't hold up. Nine sacks the following week at San Diego against Drew Brees and company. And the rest is history. One of the guys that took the field for the Texans in 2002 is a guy we mentioned, Jay Foreman. Well, we wanted to find out what he's doing now. So Drew Doherty did a little where are they now. That's next on Texans All Access. Texans All Access. Texans All Access. It's a beautiful Friday night. We got Texans All Access coming at you. I'm your host, Sean Harris, football analyst, sideline reporter. And I love a little where are they now, especially – with this guy, Jay Foreman, when I did my first draft back in 2014, on the Saturday, I believe, that we did the show, maybe on Friday, it was Mark, myself, and Jay Foreman. Man, the three of us did the draft, had a blast. We talked ball that day, and uh, it was really cool getting to know Jay 
And he caught up with Drew Doherty to find out what Jay's got going on right now. Here's the former Husker with Mr. Doherty. We've got an original Texan with us. That's right. Linebacker Jay <laughs> Foreman. Jay, you and I were just talking off camera. It's been way too long. I think it was, yeah. you know, during Andre Johnson's Ring of Honor weekend in 17. And before that, we'd see it training camp from time to time. But you're looking good. How are you? What's going on these days? Where are you and what are you yeah. doing? Yeah, I'm back in uh, my original stomping grounds in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, oh. I've been working for a company called Midwest Holding. So I kind of just help them out with their uh, marketing and sales a little bit. So I've been doing that for a while. Um, coach a little bit of youth basketball and every once in a while I'll go down and help with the Husker uh, football team. Um, mainly this year, I went down there quite a, quite a bit. So just kind of stay, stay busy, man. And, um, you know, health is, you know, decent for the most part. Um, you know, still got, you know, obviously neck and back injuries, but nothing, uh, you know, out of the norm. So uh, just trying to live life. And you know how it is, man, just trying to, uh, you know, I enjoy watching football now um, and don't have to get ready to get those hits all the time. So uh, <laughs> These dudes are moving at, you know, I, I would like to think people thought when I played, I was moving that fast, but these dudes look like they're moving a lot faster than I ever did. Well, you were moving quick, quickly. You were moving fast in those days for sure. 2006 was, I guess, your last year that you played in a regular season game. You yeah. just mentioned it was fun or it is fun watching games. Was that immediate? Did it, were you able to watch like in 2007 without, you know, kind of having? Man. Yeah. You know, to be honest with you, uh, I didn't watch football or do anything with football for like two or three years. I mean, mm -hmm. I didn't, I mean, I'm talking about, I didn't watch high school, college or pros, um, you know, cause I'd never ever been injured and I got hurt my last year at Houston and um, never seemed to be able to get back on, on track and then kind of bounced around the last, you know, couple of years and hurt my neck real bad. So you never leave and didn't leave the game, not even close how I'd like. And most of us don't. Um, and so, you know, you're trying to figure stuff out, but um, you know, me coming back to Nebraska uh, periodically kind of rekindled that. And then that, you know, led me when I'd be down in training camp every year, uh, did a little bit of media stuff when they had Comcast Sportsnet and did some stuff with the Texans and they did, the Texans have always done a good job with uh, us original Texans or any alumni keep keeping us involved when we're in town. So, yeah, um, you know, so then that, it, it kind of, you know, um, uh, you know, snowballed from there and, uh, now I get this, you know, when I do get a free moment and watch a good game, I, I definitely sit down and, and uh, watch it from a fan's perspective. Yeah. So you're in Lincoln. Yeah. When you were playing for the Huskers, you guys <laughs> were no joke, man. I mean, y'all yeah. were one of the bullies in college football. What's it like? You said you help out with the team. What sort of stuff do you do? And what's it like, you know, being in, in Lincoln and and seeing the team now versus what, what it was like when you were there. Obviously, there's yeah, big differences, but yeah, you know. it's a it's a drastic difference of obviously the record. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's good to be around. And the only thing I'm not down there like a full time, no way by a coach. I just volunteer every once in a while. And what I try to do is work with the players uh from a mental standpoint, you know, kind of focus in and understand that, you know, you only get to play this game a short time. Um, you know, I think it's like what under one percent that guys that make it and, and they stay a little bit longer than they're supposed to for uh, you know you know, getting, you know, your veteran status in the NFL. So I try to get them to understand, maximize your opportunity, um, take advantage of it. And it's more from the mental side. And um, mainly that was this year. And as far as the team goes, you know, obviously there just uh, been a lot of transition, you know, because when I was here, Coach Osborne was here. It's kind of like Nick Saban 
is now at uh, Alabama and that's how we played. And so, uh, you know, obviously it brings back good memories watching them. And then Scott, you know, who was a former teammate of mine is trying to get it back on the right track. So it's been very frustrating as an alumni uh, just because I'm not used to seeing Nebraska lose at this rate. <laughs> um, but I think they're on the right track. So, um, you know, I just try to, you look, I always try to tell play, any players, whether it's a rookie or somebody that's, you know, playing in the NFL aspirations, even college or high school to college, what I did good, what I wish I would have maybe done different, where I kind of ran into a little bit of uh, speed bumps. And maybe if I heard a story or two that may correlate to what they're doing, because I feel like that's the one of the best ways that um, I can give back is help people if they if it could help one player maybe have a good or better experience playing football or maybe last a year or two longer in the NFL then that's what you're supposed to do because you know when I was growing up I was fortunate enough that my dad uh, was a pretty prominent player in his time not even biased I think he should probably get in the in the hall of fame um, not there yet but I was able to be exposed to a lot of guys that he played with and played against so just going mm-hmm. to different events and stuff and so that's what, you know, it kind of really made my transition a little bit easier going from college or from high school to college, college to pros. So I, felt, I always told myself if I ever was in a position like that and people asked my advice or thought I could help out in any way, that's the least that you can do is just try to help out. Because it's hard to do, man. It's, uh, you know, playing just playing a game at the NFL level is an accomplishment. And then when you're talking about putting a career together and trying to be successful uh, because the competition is thick. So. Um, that's kind of what I'm doing down there in Nebraska or did last year. And, um, you know, we'll see if I go back this year. I think, you know, obviously they haven't even got back to school yet. So it's, it's nothing that's going to be on the horizon, but, you know, mainly it's, uh, you know, I'm good to try to help out the game as much as possible. Yeah. You just brought this, this interview is about you, uh, but you just brought up your father, Chuck Foreman, running back for those that don't know, uh, the 1970s, the Minnesota Vikings. I mean, they were one of the creme de la creme in the NFL during that period played in a lot of Super Bowls. So, yeah. yeah, you're right. Your dad is one of the greats, and he does deserve a lot more consideration for sure. Yeah. Uh, tell me about coming into the NFL. You leave Nebraska. You go to the Buffalo Bills. Steadily, you get better year by year. You spent three yeah. years with them. Your final year there, you get over 100 tackles. And right. then you are an original Texan, yeah. but you're not everybody knows this. You were traded to traded. the Texans. So <laughs> yeah. what was that like? Tell me about that transition. Because yeah, I think people was- – People assume, you know, they saw what you did with the Texans. You were one of the leaders on that great defense. We can say it now. It was a great defense. Wins and losses, it didn't translate because of some stuff going on on the offensive side of the ball. You guys were a hell of a defense. You were one of their leaders, but you were not one of the expansion draftees. Right, yeah. You know, what's funny is the internet was very – immature at that time. It sure you know, was, I think, yeah. I think, you know, you know, where you, you know, the whole thing is, you know, you try to get you right, you have to try to build yourself up and then maybe get a tender at that time, which is, uh, you know, a fourth year contract. I was a late round draft choice. And, and like you said, steady worked my way up, played a few games my rookie year, started a lot my second year, got a new coach, did pretty well, you know, and then the only thing that you could get on the internet back then, and, and we had dial up, you know, so we had no inter- no uh, Wi-Fi was to get on, I think, a website, kffl.com. And, you know, that's where you get your free agency news. And so the expansion draft went. Um, they usually had to notify you whether you were going to be in it. And I never got notified uh, because I was a restricted free agent. So they really couldn't, but they could. And um, so, I'll, you know, they signed a veteran linebacker that had previous experience with Coach Williams, who was the coach at Buffalo at the time, Greg Williams. 
So I was kind of in limbo, but, you know, my agent was like, you go back there and maybe they'll switch your positions and you'll play. And went out there for like the first like kind of mini camp at OTAs. And they said, before you step out here, I just want to let you know, we just traded you for Charlie Rogers. And then, um, you know, next thing you know, I think that night or that very next morning, I was on my way to Houston, which, you know, I'd only been down to Texas playing and co- playing in college. And so we played down in San Antonio in the Big 12 championship, but I'd never really been to Texas. And I, mm-hmm. but I play with tons of guys from Texas. And you hear, I always say this guys from Texas, it's always bigger and better. And when you get there, I didn't even realize Houston at that time was the third largest city in the whole United States, you know? Yeah. So I'm learning on the fly, let alone when I left Buffalo. It was considering a hot day. I think it was like 68 degrees and sunny. Get down in Houston. I think oh, it was it goodness. was it was 90 degrees, 90 percent humidity. And Dom was the coach. I didn't really know what was going on. Um, the best thing I think that could have happened to me was um, Chris Brown was, had just signed as a free agent. I think from Pittsburgh uh-huh. as a kicker. Me and him played together. So that's good. You have a familiar face, even though he's a kicker. He, you know, obviously we're not in the same. You know position group room but you still know him and sure. we've been knowing each other since we've been 18 and then I knew Kali Wong because in the offseason I lived in Minneapolis and he came down from the Vikings so at least I had some guys I could talk to and converse and I knew all the players that they picked up you know just you know they were all you know Seth Payne Jamie Sharper Aaron Glenn Marcus Coleman um, Gary Walker so forth and so on so like oh you know look it's be a you know good situation or you know playing with some good players got down here and um you know, they threw me in the fire. Reggie Herring was my uh, linebacker coach. And if you know anything about Reggie, he is definitely intense. And um, the good thing that I didn't know until, you know, middle of the first season was he knew my linebacker coach in Buffalo. They must have coached together. So he knew kind of what buttons to push. And Reggie brought out the best in me, man. And um, I love Reggie to this day. I still, you know, text with him, you know, three or four times a year. Um and we really dove in. I got to learn the defense, which was, a, you know, very, very complex defense, the Dom Capers 3-4 defense. But once I got there, I kind of felt like I took off individually. And it allowed me to prosper not only as a player, but then also as a leader, you know, be more, yeah. before, you know, be a voice, grow up. I was still was a fourth-year player. So you got to think Jamie Sharper was a Super Bowl champion. Aaron Glenn was a numerous-time Pro Bowler. Marcus Coleman should have. Gary Walker's been a Pro Bowler. Seth Klain was really, really good. And so I had to find my way, but then once I got in there and I figured, you know, the best thing that I can do is show up early every day, work my tail off, produce, and everything else as far as them under, you know, welcoming me as the leader. When you're the middle linebacker and the play caller, you're just a, you're the, you're the de facto leader, whether you like it or not. And then it, it, it just kind of was a perfect marriage, man. And we played hard for each other. We played, you know, a lot of great football the first two years and where injuries hit us in the third year. Um, and I love those guys. You know, we went through some times together where, you know, the offense was very lean um, and it's a new team, you know, and uh, you were kind of, you know, new organization, but that we had tremendous amount of uh, support organizationally wise and fan base wise. So we, so that was really good, but uh, you know, we had to take it on the chin and, and every time we see Houston have success, you kind of feel like you have a little bit invested in it because, you know, sure. it, we were the, the, the original guys. And they make us feel at home too, you know, when you come back and stuff and all the players that they, or that I've ever came in, you know, contact with, you know, afterwards are really, really good. So I always look back at Houston as a, a secondary home. If I didn't live in Nebraska, I definitely live in Houston. I love going back there. I miss it. You know, obviously now during the winter here in Nebraska, but I love the city <laughs> of Houston. 
nothing but fond memories. Um, some of my best friends are down there and, um, and I made a lot of great friends that I still talk to. Yeah. Um, and we're, you know, haven't been down there for quite some time, but every time we see each other, uh, it's, we start right over. Like when I see Fred Weary, I love, I love going back to alumni week and weekend seeing Eric Brown. Cause he's the guy, he's yep. the, he's the one of the best personalities. He's a character man. man. And Kenny Wright, you know, you see him, Mary, Corey Bradford. Um, and then Fred Weary. I love seeing Fred. I mean, uh, cause we used to butt heads all the time. Um, <laughs> but it, he's a guy I have a tremendous amount of respect for him as a player, as a person. But we had it, we, even though we obviously didn't win as much as we thought we should or could or whatever the situation was, it was never from a lack of effort um, or, 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 you know, trying to do the right thing. And we really bonded. I mean, you got to think to take the leap of faith, whether you got picked up in the expansion draft or traded, ideally it's not probably where you want to go as a ascending player. Um, but you get down there and you make it work and you start to build relationships and you go through the grind and you make it the first year, second, third year, you know, you kind of start to have a, a, a good foundation. And, uh, you know, one of the things I wish they could have done was maybe let us try to do it one more year. Cause I felt like we could have got a little bit more healthy on defense, obviously infused some draft choices or, or whatever they did. And Andre was really starting to take off. Um, and we started to kind of get a little bit better on that side of the ball and, and stuff like that. Um, I think we could have really did some things, but obviously it worked out, you know, obviously shortly after that and they uh, made the playoffs numerous times, which was great to see because yeah. uh, definitely the city of Houston definitely, you know, obviously deserves, you know, obviously a winner. And, um, you know, you know, I, I, I always, you see it right now. I got my Houston Jersey here and Buffalo there, you know, I played two more seasons for giants in San Francisco, but these are the only two that I have framed. And I always, you know, think of the Houston uh, first and foremost, even though I'm, you know, we're drafted by the Buffalo Bills. Yeah. You know, you, you bring up that defense and it was an expansion team, but it's not an expansion defense. If it, if it had been like a true typical expansion team defense, right. boy, uh, the, the straights would have been <laughs> much <laughs> dire. You know, it would have been a lot uglier yeah. than, than what it, what it was, but you started yeah. out, you guys and the Texans started out on such a high with the yeah. win over the Cowboys. What's your main weird recollection about that night? It's interesting talking to you guys that played in it because everyone's got a, an, an odd little memory about that night that just stands out above everything else. Right. It was a night game, a Sunday night. Um, what people don't understand, that I think Dallas was on hard knocks mm -hmm. and uh, we scrimmaged them kind of like co-practice. And I remember there was a thing, Emmett Smith was on the bus and he's like, oh, we can run the ball against him. And I'm thinking like, you guys didn't do anything, you know, like when we practiced. <laughs> And that, that was it. And I just remember the tension, the excitement in that locker room. I mean, you could cut it with a, with a butter knife. And once Dom Caper said go, and we started out fast with the defense and we were playing at another speed that they hadn't seen us play before, you could see in their eyes that they weren't ready to play. Um, but one of the great things was when Gary, I think Gary Walker got that big, I think it was a, either a safety or a tackle back there in the end zone. I'm out. It actually was Seth Payne. Oh, That's Seth like a sore Payne. subject for Seth. Yes, Gary yes, was right yes, there too. Yes, <laughs> but yes, I don't I don't do, want to I don't want to do deprive remember, Seth. <laughs> I do remember that because Gary the next week in the locker room, Gary was trying to take credit for it and Seth was mad. <laughs> and I was like, You two played together with Jackson, but you should know Gary. He, Gary yeah. is always gonna be that guy that's gonna push your button. So Gary I, had I, the awesome flex on camera yes. that the camera caught, but yeah, Seth right. got there but a little bit. <laughs> Seth had the sack, Gary was 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 flexing, and I really felt like the ground was shaking. That's how that's how wow. loud the crowd was. And it was awesome. It was like you didn't want to leave the field. Um, obviously, I played in national championship games before, 
And Dama told us this is going to be a big game. And then I really realized how much Houston missed football. Yeah. You know, you hear about it, right? And you hear about the Oilers going to Tennessee and it's like, oh, that's I'm from, from here. Afar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, so from afar and then, you know, the preseason. Okay. You know, but when it's Dallas and we got them at home Sunday night, it was nothing. Um, there was nothing like it. And uh, obviously, you know, it's hard to replicate that. And, uh, but it's a, you get off on the start, the right foot. You have the confidence, but we just weren't able to kind of, you know, parlay that into numerous wins. But that night is really, really special. And every time that I get to walk on the field, I remember what it was like me walking out for that, you know, during the game and feeling it. it, You couldn't see an empty seat. I mean, you talk about pregame, hour and a half before a game, if you're warming up. I mean, it was jam-packed. And, um, you know, it's it's great to be a part of history. It's great to be part of the the early history in in Houston. And, um, you know, like I said, I I can't say it enough is like how much I'm, you know, miss and love the city of Houston and the Texans. And, uh, you know, just to be a part of it, be a part of a win against Dallas, which is always fun. And um, I never really said I like didn't like a team or hated a team. But ever since then, I always hate Dallas. You know, <laughs> a lot of my, a lot of my friends, you know, they say they're Dallas Cowboys, man. I got Cowboy fans like, man, what's wrong with you? You know, and uh <laughs> But, you know, we got one up on them. We, uh, you know, took them to the woodshed. And I'm sure every time that Houston gets a hookup with Dallas, you know, I guess it brings back some uh, fond memories of that first night. Daggum right it does. 1910, baby. 1910. And we will see the Cowboys in 2022. We might see Kayvon Thibodeau as a Texan. Let's find out more about him next right here on Texas All Access. Texas All Access. Texas All Access. Welcome back to this Friday edition of Texans All Access. It's time to learn a little bit about some draft prospects. One in particular, Kayvon Thibodeau, played for the Oregon Ducks. D.P. Sidhu caught up with Rob Mosley, who's the editor-in-chief of GoDucks.com. And back in the day, he covered the Ducks for the Register Guard there in Eugene. Nobody's going to know the Ducks like Rob Mosley. Here's D.P. and Rob talking about Kayvon Thibodeau and the Ducks. We're continuing our draft series on some of the top 2022 NFL draft prospects from the perspective of those that covered them on the beat. And today I'm joined by Rob Mosley. He covers Oregon football for GoDucks.com. You've also got a top-ranked Twitter handle, Rob, <laughs> at Duck Football. I mean, were you like one of the first users of Twitter to, to snag that? I think I got on in like 2007. So, yeah, I uh, I always tell people one of my most valuable traits is that I'm, I'm uh, I take advice and some tech guy back, you know, 15 years ago told me to get on Twitter. And so I just said, okay. And I did. And so fortunately I, uh, I jumped on that handle early. Yeah. You have an A plus Twitter handle at duck football. All right. I want to talk to you about Kayvon Thibodeau. He's widely projected to be one of the top picks in this year's draft. And he's even been projected to go number three to the Houston Texans um, with some of these mock drafts that have come out recently. What do you think his best asset is when he lines up on the field and what might separate him from some of the other defensive players at the top of the board? Yeah. He's just incredibly athletic you know, his flexibility is top notch. So his ability to kind of bend at the waist and, and get low and, and get around the edge is, is, you know, unlike anything I've really seen before covering a, a player day to day. So yeah, just that explosiveness off the line. He's, he's just, he's, he's different. You know, this is Oregon football, you know, the last 20 years or so is, has been uh, pretty good and has put out some pretty good players, you know, Deion Jordan a few years ago, although he didn't have a, ended up having a great pro career was a, a high level prospect. And yeah, I mean, I think KT's there may not be an equal to him in terms of uh, a, a guy with that ability off the edge, that kind of explosive athleticism off the edge. I mean, he's obviously an elite pass rusher. He's good against the run. He seems to do all of it really, really well. Do you 
think he's better suited for a three, four or a four, three defensive end. Where do you, where do you foresee him fitting in? If you had to guess. I do know that we saw him move around a lot here and have success. I mean, he, he could play on the edge and drop back into coverage. You know, that's Tim DeRuiter, the defensive coordinator here the last couple of years, you know, really liked uh, that kind of positional flexibility he provided, you know, but we also saw times over the last three years where he would move inside to a tackle position. You know, I, I remember against Wisconsin in the Rose bowl, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, he moved inside and was taken on, you know, a big 10 center and winning, winning battles, at the line of scrimmage. So uh, he, he really showed at different times that he could do a little bit of everything when asked. All right. So he's obviously just such a great athlete, but his sack numbers are not super high compared to some of the other big defenders in this draft class. I mean, you've seen him play, you've seen him live. Is that a big deal or is there more to Thibodeau that just doesn't show up in the stat sheets that we're missing? Well, I mean, I, I think a couple caveats to that would be one, he demanded a lot of attention here. I mean, he was, he, you know, as any elite pass rusher in a draft class is going to be was the best guy on their team and probably commanded some extra attention. So this probably applies to all, you know, all the high level pass rushers that are going to be in this draft class. But yeah, I mean, he was, he was definitely getting a lot of attention from, from opposing blocking schemes, uh, particularly, you know, this past year. And then the other thing is, you know, he, 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 he missed, it felt like almost half the season due to injuries um, that kept him out of parts or all of games. And so that affected his, his statistical totals too. But, you know, still a guy who was, you know, first team all league, things like that, you know, garnering still a ton of respect from, from the players he went against. You know, he won the Morris Trophy a couple of years ago as the best defensive lineman in, the com- in our conference. And, and what's notable about that is the people who select that are opposing offensive linemen. So he definitely had the respect of his peers on the other side of the ball around our league. So you know, statistics obviously can, can help tell a story, but, but obviously not a complete story. And so, yeah, I, I think one notable thing about him too, is if you look at his postseason performances, I mentioned the Rose bowl against Wisconsin a couple of years ago. If you look at his, his output in uh, the couple of uh, in the, in the PAC 12 championship games, he did play in his first couple of years. I mean, it was like a couple sacks a game in those PAC 12 championship games. So he had the ability to, when the lights were shining brightest, to be at his best along those lines. I mean, is there a particular game or a play or a matchup that really stands out to you in covering Thibodeau? I think it's really that. I think it's that when, you know, when you look at, you know, the fourth quarter against Utah, when he was a freshman in the, in the conference championship game, and then the Rose bowl that year, if you look at the conference championship game against USC in 2020, those were his best moments. I mean, those, those are the moments he shined the brightest. And so to sit, to, to have a guy who, when you're going against the best competition on the biggest stages, have those be your most noteworthy performances. I think that says something about, you know, just, just his ability to play under pressure and to come through for his team, you know, when they need him. He seems like he's really flourished at every, every level of football he's ever played high school, college. What's an instance of adversity you think that he's had to overcome and and face and and that you really thought he came out well on the other end of it? Well, I think, I mean, if you look at the injuries he had to play through this past year and, and, you know, not being able to play in the Ohio state game and, and how much that must've dogged him. And that's, you know, he's a guy who, you know, once this team lost at Stanford last year, you know, he's a guy who might've said, Hey, you know, I, I got a, I got a bright future ahead of me. You know, I'm going to make sure I'm a hundred percent before I get back on the field. And that wasn't the case, you know, it was, you know, tape up his ankle and get back on the field as soon as he could. So he could help his team. So, you know, I thought, I thought, you know, that revealed some character there that a guy who obviously has such a promising future and, you know, probably had some questions about how much do I want to lay it on the line 
at this level, knowing the next levels out there, he did it. He, you know, he, he went to battle with his teammates. So I thought that that was impressive. I'm so intrigued by some of his, the stuff I've read about him personally. It seems like he's really business-minded. Yeah. He has a collaboration with Nike. He launched his own cryptocurrency. What's, what's he like to cover off the field? What's his personality like? Give us a little insight into him. Yeah. He's just, he's just a, a guy with a sense for the big picture and a sense for where being an elite, what the other doors that being an elite athlete can open up. And so, you know, when he, when he, you know, when he was first choosing a college, he was interested in media. And so a big part of coming to Oregon was the journalism school here and how that might, that might help him. And I think when you see how savvy he is, how polished he is in, in media settings and interview situations, it's because he's been preparing himself to handle those situations well through his education. And when you see, you know, him getting into like NFTs and things like that, you know, now it seems like everybody's doing that. But, you know, he was one of the first, you know, in partnering with Tinker Hatfield, the, the Nike designer to, to have an NFT. So I think he just he's a guy who and, and for some people, I think that makes it seem like he's distracted. He's not, you know, may, perhaps not as focused as some other players. But again, you look at his performances in big games, you know, he, you know, he comes through for his team. So he, I think he makes some other sacrifices in his life, socially, things like that, so that he can be ready on the football field, but then also indulge these other interests that, yeah, just make him a really worldly guy, a really polished guy, really poised guy. I always say, you know, covering college kids is such an interesting age cohort because I use the word kids and, and, and some guys show sure. up here and they're still very much kids. And some guys show up here and they're very much already young adults. And, and KT was in the latter category. When he got here, he had a presence about him, a poise, a maturity about him that, that you know, this is a guy who has, has a level of focus and a level of direction that some other guys are still trying to find when they get to college. It seems like that might be an asset to him and going through the combine and the draft process, just meeting with teams and getting these interviews. The fact that, like you say, that he is so poised and polished, would it not? Yeah. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, hey, there's there's some football guys for whom if you're thinking about anything but football at any point in your day, you're wasting your time. Right. And so I can you know, I can understand how, you know, I'm not saying I agree with this point of view, but I can understand some of the coverage I've seen that says, oh, yeah, he, you know, we, we question his drive or whatever. But I, I just because that's a football mentality, if you're not 100 percent focused on football all the time, there must be something you know questionable about you. But he, if you turn on the, the tape, if you turn on the film, you see him come through play after play after play. And you see the attention he commands again from, from opposing offenses in terms of the way they, you know, their blocking schemes uh, direct attention to him. So he's getting it done on the field. And because he also has other interests in his life, I really hope does not be considered a, a knock against him in any way. Love that stuff there from Rob Mosley, editor-in-chief of GoDucks.com. Knows these ducks inside and out. So give you a little skinny on Kayvon Thibodeau. Big thanks to DP, to Rob, to Mark, to Drew, to Jay Foreman, to my man Robert Harris, to all you listening. Thank you so much. We'll see you on Monday. Have a great weekend, everybody. And as always, go Texans.